Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you again. Uh, I felt like I've been gone a while, but I was only gone a week, so it wasn't, wasn't really that bad. So, um, But uh, we went on like, uh, like the greatest vacation ever. We, um, I'm like, like I'll, all I can do is talk about it. So like, uh, if you don't want to hear about it, don't come up to me because I'll probably talk about it. My wife's like, just be quiet. You know, nobody, nobody cares as much as you do. I was like, I know, I know, I know. But you know, the reality is it was, it was, it was awesome. It was an awesome trip. It was one of those trips where you, you, ever, you ever go on a vacation and you, and, and you feel like, you know, I needed that. I needed that one. Sometimes when you go on vacation with kids, it's like, oh, I didn't deserve that. I don't deserve that. But this, I'm just kidding, kids. That was, every vacation's awesome. But uh, this was one of those trips I went, and I was like, that was refreshing. That was awesome. And, and, it's, and it's because we, we went up to Yellowstone, and we went up to uh, Grand Teton National Park, and uh, we just got to spend all of our time um, outside just enjoying God's creation. We got to go hiking. We got, we got to go to the uh, down and see waterfalls and, and rivers. And we saw grizzly bears and, and we saw elk and we saw b- bison and, and we saw moose. And we, we just saw bald eagles. Even a wolf kind of drove right, not, 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 not one of these wolves, but like uh, a, an actual wolf. It, it, it drove right in front of our car. And just as we were just driving, he just hobbling along, looks back at us and just scurries back into the woods. It was really amazing. I loved it, and um, it, it was it was just amazing. The most amazing part was just being up on the mountain, hiking. You know, I didn't I didn't summit because it's like I think fourteen fifteen thousand feet. wasn't wasn't quite ready for that one yet. But we went up high enough. We went up. Decent hike, enough where we could, you know, get an inspiration point at Grand Teton National Park, and um, or staying at the top of the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. If you've been there, you know what I mean. Look it up if you don't. But just standing there and just gazing out upon God's creation, it was it was amazing. It was good for the soul. It was good for the soul. Just you stand up there and, and you ask yourself, how can people say? There is no God. It's like, this is just amazing. It all points to a creator. Incredible. And it, I must admit, the, the past season at work has been super busy. School's been busy. Preaching has been busy. Family's been busy. And in a season where it kind of feels busy and a little stressful on your heart and on your soul... It was nice to have a mountaintop experience. It just was. Which kind of reminds me of our disciples this morning, Peter, James, and John, who experience the ultimate, the penultimate mountaintop experience. And they experience it at just the right time. Because they just experienced some really hard-to-process realities. I mean, if you remember the past few weeks, you know, it, it's, it's kind of been a whirlwind for these disciples, for these apostles. The last conversation they had before we get to our text today, it was, it was the fact that, like, Christ was going to die. Christ was going to suffer. Oh, oh not only that, as, as Matt preached the past two weeks and, and, and did a great job, is like, if you're my disciple, then you're going to take up your cross and follow me as well. Wasn't exactly what they were expecting following the Messiah. These are hard realities, these are, these are hard truths, these are hard callings. But Jesus, in the moment where, they, where their souls not quite understanding what Jesus is talking about, he does the best thing 
that gives them the best thing that they possibly need, and that is a vision of his glory, a vision of his holiness. My main point this morning is this. Jesus is the greatest and final prophet of God. The wise man will listen to him. Jesus is the greatest and final prophet of God. The wise man will listen to him. With that, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Today I'm going to be in verses 28 through 36. Please follow along as I read. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. May God bless the reading of his word. Friends, what a, an amazing story we get to look at this morning. What an amazing moment of God's glory. What a supernatural moment. I'm excited to preach it this morning. My first point this morning is this, is that Jesus is the long-awaited prophet. Jesus is the long-awaited prophet. Let's see how we get there. In verse 28, we, we, we say that, we see that about eight days after Jesus telling the disciples that he would be crucified, that he would suffer, and that he would rise again, and that his disciples would take up their cross and follow Jesus as well. These tough teachings, eight days after this, he took Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain. And he went up on the mountain to pray. So far, when we've seen Jesus praying, big stuff happens. We're going to see Jesus continue to pray throughout the gospel. And I want you to just notice this every time, every time Jesus, we see Jesus praying, big stuff is happening. Prayer is extremely important to Jesus. And he brings these three apostles up there to pray. Just the, the, Peter, James, and John were kind of his inner circle even of his, of his, uh, of his apostles. He had many apostles, then he had the, the twelve he had many disciples, then he had the apostles who were, who were the twelve. And then even within that group of twelve, he had this smaller group who seemed to be the closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And they go up on the mountain to pray. And when Jesus prays, it's not just a little quick prayer meeting. And it's not like, you know, we pray for our food and, we, you know, God is great, God is good, let us think of our food by his hands we are fed. Thank you, Lord, for daily bread. Amen. It's not like that. I mean, Jesus gets into it. Last time we see Jesus praying is he was praying uh, for, uh, with, with, for the apostles, before he, before he chose the apostles. He stays up all night praying. So they go up there, and, and they're having an amazing prayer meeting, and then something happens. As, as they're praying, verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. The, this this, this Greek word for altered, it's like a metamorphosis. It changed. His face changed. His face looked different. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't this just same face that they had seen. I, I can't describe it because I wasn't there. But it was drastically different. 
And it says, his clothing became dazzling white. Jesus here is is presenting himself in his glory. In his glory. We, We see glimpses of this, of God's glory in the Old Testament. The Old Testament text that Jews would have had to look back upon and would have, would have meditated on and thought about when they, when, they, when they thought about God, things that, that would have impacted their, their, their view of God or their thoughts about God. In Daniel 7, 9, we, we read this, that the Ancient of Days took his seat on the throne and his vesture, his, his clothing, was white like snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. We get that picture there, just holiness, just pure. In Ezekiel 1, 27, Ezekiel writes this, that I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. I mean, we, 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 we could go on because there's many many things that talk about the the appearance of God, but it's always glowing. It's always glorious. It's always pure. It's always holy, and it's always terrifying. Not terrified of me because God's a monster, but it's terrifying because God is holy. He's holy. He's good. He's powerful. And we're not. So when finite creatures, when sinful creatures, they gaze upon the holiness of Christ, they don't, they don't dap it up with Jesus. It's a fearful thing to be before a holy God when you are not a holy being. But here Jesus, he, his appearance was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. It was glowing. It was, it was exuding just, just white fire and light. Verse 30, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. We know Moses from the Old Testament. We know Elijah from the Old Testament. Moses and was a prophet first, and Elijah was a prophet later. God himself buried Moses. God, Elijah never died, but it just was brought up in a chariot of fire. Two great prophets of God, two popular prophets of God, beloved prophets of God. And in that moment, as they see Jesus with his face altered in his glory, they see two men standing there, Moses, they see Elijah, and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Let's meditate on this a bit. Why why Moses and why Elijah? Jesus is revealing himself in his glory here. Why Moses? Why Elijah? Why not Jeremiah? Why not David? Oh, we could go. Why not Joseph? Why Moses and why Elijah? Well, let's start with Elijah. I think it's proper to start with Elijah first. When we, when we think about the prophet Elijah, one thing we should consider is the fact that Jews of that time expected Elijah to come before the Messiah. That was their expectation. In fact, we, we've seen it a few times um, in, uh, in the book of Luke. Who are they saying that Jesus is? They say, some say he's John the Baptist. Some say he's a prophet of old. Some say he's Elijah. There's this, exp- like, why these guys? Well, there was a general expectation, again, that Elijah was going to come and be the forerunner to the Messiah. And at that point, it was in the, the way that they saw things. Uh, the Messiah would come in and, and destroy Rome and, and, and usher in the kingdom, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they were very much looking for Elijah. In the forefront of their minds, we are looking for Elijah. And we see this because of Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6. They didn't just make this up. They, they, they got this from the word of God. Malachi 4, 5 through 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of, the, of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So they were right 
They were right to be looking for Elijah. That's good exegesis. Good interpretation. Good thing to be looking for. Be honest. As we're expecting the Lord's second coming, there's a lot of wacky things that people are attributing to his second coming that people are looking for. And it's like, that's not in the Bible. Ignore it. But I'll get off that soapbox for a second and get back here. Um, As they're looking for Elijah, we can look at Luke 1, 16 through 17. This was preached several months ago. It's a prophecy about John the Baptist. This prophecy about John the Baptist says this. John the Baptist will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We see John the Baptist, and, and it says that, that, that he went in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And what did he, what did he do? What, what did Malachi say? Malachi said that this Elijah would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. What did John the Baptist do? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He would come in the spirit of who? Elijah. In the power of who? Elijah. What else do we see? Matthew 11, 13 through 14. It says this. Jesus says this in, this, uh, in, in, in a different spot. He says, for, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Law and the prophets were prophesying until John. And then verse 14. And if you were willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Jesus says this, that John himself is Elijah who was to come. And then we go to Mark 9, 11 through 13. And they asked him, this is the other passage, the, the, the uh, Mark account of the transfiguration. The apostles ask Jesus, Peter, James, and John ask Jesus. He, they say, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? Again, they're looking. Jesus is revealing himself in, in glory. But they don't understand it because they're saying, why must Elijah? But Elijah's got to come first. Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But then Jesus points them to something else that they're not seeing. They're not understanding. And how was it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You guys, you guys are right about Elijah. You're right. You're right about Elijah. You interpreted that correctly, but you're not seeing that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And then he goes on to say something else. But I tell you that Elijah has come. He has come. Elijah's come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. We know that John the Baptist did what? What happened with him? He was beheaded. He was killed. Seems to me that the prophecy in Malachi 4, 5 through 6, the coming of Elijah, seems to me, as Jesus says, that Elijah has come. Now you must be looking for the Son of Man to suffer many things. And I think Elijah's presence here, actual Elijah, not just John the Baptist representing Elijah, but Elijah here in, on the mount, I believe it's believe confirming this to the apostles, Peter, James, and John, that I am doing what I said I would do. I believe Elijah's presence here is a confirmation of Jesus fulfilling the prophecy. Let's move to Moses. Why Moses? 
Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18. I do want you to turn here. I often don't ask you to turn. But I think this is, this is important. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through, through 22. The Lord in His law through Moses, He writes this. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. That's a prophet like Moses will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Underline that. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So we see this in Deuteronomy 18, through, uh, 18, 15 through 22, that God's people would be looking for a prophet to come. They were looking for a prophet to come. They were looking not just for a prophet to come. They were looking for a prophet like Moses. And, and if we know anything about God's word... We know that Moses was like at the mountaintop peak of, 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 of prophets. Very revered, very special, used in a very, very special way, in a miraculous way. In fact, Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12, after Moses' death, it's, uh, it, it, we, see, we read this. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. There was not a prophet like Moses. He was great. He was powerful. He was used in very mighty, glorious ways for the glory of God alone. And so they're looking for an apostle or for, for a prophet like that. That kind of prophet. You know, the kind of prophet that parted the seas. They brought the plagues. They went up on the mountain. Went face to face with God. That stood in the cloud. That brought down the law. Elijah was great, but Eli Elijah didn't do this stuff. Jeremiah was great. Jeremiah didn't do this stuff. To say, a, to look for a prophet like Moses was to look for something glorious. See, Moses was unique, as, as we already see this in Deuteronomy 34. Moses was unique. What was special about him? Well, first, he, he spoke face to face with God. We see this in Numbers 12, 8. Moses spoke face to face with God. Moses got a glimpse, a shielded glimpse of God's glory. Moses, again, went up, went up on the mountain with God. He received the law. He spoke face to face with God. God says in Numbers 12, 8, he spoke mouth to mouth with Moses. He didn't just put the word in his heart. He spoke mouth to mouth with Moses. Moses was 
viewed not just as a prophet, but as a deliverer. In in Exodus 3.10, the Lord told Moses that he was going to use him to deliver his people out of slavery, deliver them out of Egypt. And, and, And we know that the Lord did this. He used Moses to to, to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. In Exodus 15, after, um, after the Israelites have been uh, delivered from Egypt, they've been rescued from Pharaoh, they've been rescued from slavery. The song of Moses is this, <clears throat> that the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This deliverance from Egypt was a salvific type moment. They were saved. They they were delivered. And the Lord used Moses to do that. Moses was also, according to Exodus 34, 27, the mediator of of, of a covenant. The Lord used Moses to, to mediate the old covenant, to mediate the law. The Lord revealed the law to Moses. Moses brought it down to the people. He was that mediator. Moses was also a priest. We see this in, in Psalm 99.6. Of course, Moses um, is the one who brought the, the law to the people. Moses was also considered a priest, one who would... Um, who would Begin the sacrifice, begin the sacrificial system, etc., etc., etc. Moses was also a ruler. We see this in Acts 7, verse 27. In Stephen's sermon, the first martyr of the church, in Acts 7, 27, he, he calls Moses a redeemer and a ruler. Moses had authority. After Moses came Joshua. But Moses would, 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 would rule the people, but not by his own ideas or own wisdom, but according to the law of God. Moses spoke face to face with God. Moses was viewed as a deliverer. Moses was the mediator of a covenant. Moses was viewed as a priest, and Moses was a ruler. And so they were looking for a prophet like that. That's the kind of prophet that they were looking for. None of the other prophets were like this. And I believe this passage is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. In Acts 3:18 through 22, Peter in his first sermon preaching to the Jews after Christ has been crucified and he rose from the dead and he lived among the disciples for 40 days and then he ascended into heaven after the Great Commission, after Acts 1 where the Holy Spirit comes and he's given to the church and Peter goes out and preaches to the Jews. One of the first things he says in Acts 3, 18 through 22, he identifies Jesus as the prophet like Moses. You, you want to talk about a way to go when, when the Jews, what was, what, was, what was Peter's strategy? To point the fact that Jesus was the prophet like Moses. In fact, Acts 7, 35, I already mentioned it, 35 through 37. Again, Stephen mentions the prophet like Moses that was to come, and he attributes it again to who? To Jesus. Jesus is the prophet like Moses that was to come. But listen, he's better. We sang about it this morning. He sang that. Maybe, a, maybe it stirred your heart. Is that just something we sing? Is that just an idea that we kind of conjure up? Or is that in the Word of God? Well, I would appeal this in the Word of God, Hebrews 3, 3 through 6. It says this, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. More glory. Moses was great. Moses was revered. Moses was loved. But the, but the writer of Hebrews says this, that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more, uh, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses, listen, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. 
to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a what? As a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Moses was a servant, a fellow servant of the house of God. And Jesus is a member of the household. He is the family of the household. He's an heir in the household. He is the son of the household. Oh, you don't walk in. You can imagine walking into a house and, and you've got a royal family here. And then they've got their, they've got their servants over here. Imagine walking, imagine walking into a home and, and, and the first thing that, that, that you would want to do is, is, is bow down and, and start honoring the servants. No, the point of the house isn't the servants. The point of the servants is to honor the family, to honor the son, to honor the father. It's the point of the servant. Servant wasn't the point. The point was the son. The son is the penultimate Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. He is like Moses, but, but he is better. And, but in what sense was Jesus like Moses, but better? Well, Moses spoke face to face with God. But according to John chapter 1, Jesus is the word of God. He is the word made flesh. He is God become man. Speaking the word of God, revealing the will of God, revealing the character of God, revealing the person of God. This is Jesus so much better than Moses who with veiled face would come and speak face to face and present the words that God would give him. Jesus was speaking the word of God from his mouth. He is the word of God. He is the word made flesh. God left heaven put on flesh, and dwelt among us. Friends, can you believe that? Or do you sit in your seat this morning just hardened and apathetic towards this reality? God has revealed himself, friends. He has come. He has spoken. He's spoken finally through Jesus Christ, his son. Amen. But Moses was the mediator of the law. God gave Moses the law. He gave him the old covenant. He presented it to the Israelites. But Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. The covenant established with the spotless blood of the Lamb. The covenant where the Lord would write his law upon our hearts. The Spirit would come live in us. That all who are part of this covenant would know the Lord. And this covenant was established by the death of Christ. Not by goats, not by lambs, but by the sinless Son of God. That is Jesus. That is this prophet. Moses himself, he was a temporary priest. Do you understand that? Moses died. Moses didn't enter the promised land because he was a sinful man. The Levites had to do sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, first sacrificing for themselves, then sacrificing for the sins of the people because they were perpetually sinful. You know what Christ did? Do you know what Christ did? Jesus, the greatest and only holy high priest, according to Hebrews one, he made purification for sin. And you know what he did after that? He sat. He sat. He's done. No more sacrifices needed because his sacrifice was great enough. His sacrifice was worthy. It's finished. It is done. Praise God. Moses couldn't do that. Moses didn't do that. Jesus did it. Moses ruled over the Israelites. He did. God sent Moses and Moses was in charge. 
But you know what? Christ rules over all creation. Matthew 28 says this, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Christ rules it all. Christ rules from the mountains of the Grand Tetons in Jackson, Wyoming to here in Kennesaw. God reigns in Antarctica. God reigns in Mars. Jesus Christ reigns in China. Jesus Christ reigns in the Middle East where they want nothing to do with him. Jesus reigns, friends. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not Moses. Not Moses, but Jesus. And God used Moses to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. But Jesus delivers us from our sin and into his kingdom. We see this in Colossians 1.13. That Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from sin and hatred of God, as enemies of God, loving this world, loving the things of this world. Loving ourselves, loving our glory, loving things that dishonor God. That was where we were. That's what we wanted with all of our hearts. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus did that. Moses brought a sinful people out of Egypt, out of slavery, to only stay there in their sin. And most of the people that he brought out of Egypt wanted nothing to do with God. It was very quick how they're complaining and grumbling against God. Yes, there was a faithful remnant, but the majority of them wanted nothing to do with God. But Christ has redeemed and forgiven a people for his own by his death. That's what Christ did. Moses couldn't do that. Moses couldn't change a heart. Moses couldn't elect. Moses couldn't save. Oh, but friends, Jesus did. Jesus did. And how did he do that? By his life, death, and resurrection, which was... The point of the discussion here. We have Elijah here. We have Moses here. We have Jesus here. Do you ever think about what you would talk about when you get to heaven? You ever thought, of, raise your hand, you ever thought about that? I have. I want to go talk to, I want to go see this dude. I want to go see that dude. I want to go ask him questions. Jesus, he sees his old homeboys. He sees Moses and Elijah. And what's the topic at hand? His departure. The Greek word here for departure is exodus. It's actually exodus. His departure. What's the topic they're talking about right now? Around the throne. In heaven. Oh, friends, you need not guess. In Revelation chapter 4. There's beasts and there's elders and there's angels. You know what they're saying? You know what the topic of conversation is right now? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's the topic. The topic isn't Noah. The, the topic isn't how the seas parted. The topic isn't blind men who could see. The topic isn't John the Baptist. The topic is this. The lamb that was slain now reigns. The ultimate point in all of history is this, that Jesus died and rose again. That's what Jesus talks about to Moses and Elijah. Oh, we will not get to heaven and, want to, and, and, have, and, and to think about the ark we're not. We're going to be like the elders and the angels. We're going to be like, praise God that Jesus died and rose again. That is the ultimate point of history. And this is who, this is the discussion that Jesus had with Moses and Elijah. This is the topic of conversation for this one true and final prophet. 
And as they're having this kind of conversation, Peter, James, and John wake up. They start to wake up. I imagine they're awake for the rest of this, but they're really starting to wake up, become more attentive. It's been a long night. Point two, we must be careful how we respond to God. We must be careful how we respond to God. Verse 32, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. <coughs> as, as, uh, as, as Peter said this, it's, it's possible in, in bringing, these, bringing these tents out, that he was alluding to the Feast of Booths that is, uh, that is referred to in Leviticus 23, 33 through 43. Probably wasn't intended to be offensive. Uh, this, this Feast of Booths was a celebratory feast focusing on God's provision of bringing his people out of Israel. Uh, but it also would talk about God's ultimate eschatological provision. It wasn't necessarily intended to be, provi- uh, to be offensive, it was, uh, it, was, it was natural for, for God's people to celebrate this way. But regardless of Peter's heart and regardless of Peter's intent, Luke, among also the other writers of the Gospels, note this. Peter didn't exactly understand what he was saying. He saw this, and he just starts talking. I know I'm not the only one who has that problem in here. Peter said, some, Peter said the wrong thing. Peter said the wrong thing, and wrong on many levels. First, Peter seems to be putting Jesus on the same level. He put three tents on the ground. He's putting them on the same level as Elijah and Moses. Wrong. Wrong. Jesus was not like Moses and Elijah. Jesus was far greater than Moses and Elijah. And if you don't think that Christ cares about his glory, God cares about his glory, go read the whole Old Testament. Next, if they were to simply stay there in this moment, and I don't blame them for wanting to stay there, by the way. I want to stay up on that mountain in Grand Tetons. I was thinking, man, you know, I could just stay here. It'd be awesome. Don't blame them. But perhaps they were trying to miss out on the suffering that Jesus had just called them to. The taking up your cross daily and following him, identifying with Christ in his suffering. Perhaps they didn't understand the need for their sin to be dealt with before they could enter glory. Perhaps they were missing the conversation about Jesus' departure, what he was actually coming to do. Perhaps they missed the original point of the tabernacle, the tent, which is where God dwelt, but now God is dwelling among them. We, we don't exactly know what is implied here by what Peter said and what it was he was missing or what was wrong with what he said exactly because the scripture doesn't say it. But we know this. He said the wrong thing. He had the wrong response. No matter how good he might have felt about his heart, it was in the wrong place. Just notice how quick Notice how quick Peter is to speak before a holy God. He's quick. He's quick to speak. He sees it, he just starts opening his mouth and blabbing. He should have considered the words in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, that says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. To draw near to listen. To draw near to listen is better 
than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Bring the sacrifices. They're drawing near to speak and to bring the sacrifices. Maybe they have a good heart, so they think. A good intention, so they think. But they're coming in hastily. And their own plans and their own power for their own glory. And they don't know that God hates that. God hates a hasty heart. God hates a quick mouth. So he says in Ecclesiastes 5.2, Be not rash with your mouth. Don't be quick. Don't be quick to speak a word before our Lord. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words flow freely. Therefore, praise Him with many words. No. Therefore, let your words be few. If you're a talker like me, if you're a preacher like me, rest of the preach team, it's a dangerous place to be. We know those who desire to preach and teach, they, they have greater accountability. It's easy to stand up here and to speak for God. Things that aren't even written in his word, but sound good, maybe make us feel good. And quite honestly, many of us in the church are like that. We can be reckless and quite frankly, stupid before a holy God. Reckless. Foolish. We often lack fear. We lack a holy reverence. We just open our mouths and, and, and we want to be heard. Reminds me of we're, we're, we're at Yellowstone and this, this, this grizzly bear is passing through. And, and God created that grizzly bear, yes, to be enjoyed. For, 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 for his glory and for our pleasure. But we don't run up to that grizzly bear with no fear and no reverence as if, as, if, as if he's our homeboy and try to take a selfie. The whole time we were at Yellowstone, all the guides kept saying, stay away from the bears, stay away from the bears. Because every year we have people who get mauled trying to take a selfie with the bear. Yes, we can draw near before God without fear, in, this, in, in a sense, that he's going to condemn us to hell. Oh, but friends, we're still called to fear the Lord with a holy fear and a holy reverence. So when we think about how we often respond to God, how quick are we to blame things on God? Well, I just feel like, you know, God was telling me to do this. God was telling me to go there. God was telling me to do this, that, and the other, and the other. Did, was he really? Was he really? Friends, be careful. Be careful with the way that we utter God's name and God's will if we're not finding it in book, chapter, verse. Be very careful. Or we speak as if we are God, being obsessed with our own opinion. Well, God wouldn't say that, or God wouldn't do that. Or maybe we believe things, church. We believe things about God that we actually can't defend. We have a theology that we can't defend. We can't back up our thoughts, what we say about God, with book, chapter, verse. We just want to be viewed as smart. We want to be viewed as credible. Friends, be careful. Be careful. I mean it. Be careful. And our desires to be teachers or be viewed as smart, we must be careful. God does not like a haughty heart. God does not like a know-it-all. God has spoken. God has spoken, and we can know this God. We can, we can praise this God. We can say things about our God that are true and bring Him glory. And you know what? They're all found right here. They're all found right here. So instead of being quick to speak, quick to be a loudmouth, quick to be presumptuous over God, quick to blame things on God, point three, 
We are commanded to listen to Jesus with the intent to obey him. To listen. Listen. To listen to Jesus with the intent to obey him. And verse 34, we read this. And he was, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Reminds us of the Shekinah glory of God in Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Reminds us of the fact that Moses was on that mountain and all the Israelites who were on, who were on, on the ground, they saw this giant cloud, this terrifying cloud, so much that when Moses came down, they said, we can't speak to God. God says, you're right. They were terrified. It was a terrifying moment. It was a terrifying moment for Peter, James, and John here. It says it, verse 34, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. They knew what the cloud meant. They read the Old Testament. It was terrifying. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, my anointed one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. It is in this moment that the Father speaks. The Father speaks. Peter, James, and John, confirming the exact identity without any shadow of doubt about who Christ is. Oh, he's the prophet of old. Yes, he is. He's the prophet to come. Yes, he is. He is. But Peter, James, and John, listen. He's so much more. He's the son of God. He is God's son. He is God in the flesh. He's not just a prophet. He is God. And it's imperative. It's imperative, Peter, James, and John, that you know that. He is God. And he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He's not just just a prophet. He's not just here to teach. He's not just here to speak. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good prophet. He is the one that will right every wrong. He is the one that will make atonement for your sins. He is the one that will redeem a people for himself. This is him. This is the one you've waited for. This is him. Elijah, Moses, and God the Father coming here, confirming that Jesus is God. If all these pagan religions out there, all these little offshoots of Christianity that claim that Jesus wasn't God, you can't read the Bible and come to that conclusion, friends. He is God. And what does God say, though? We've already seen the father confirm that this is his son. He saw that the baptism in whom he's well pleased. We've seen that. We've already seen that in Luke that he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. So what does God say next? In light of the fact that this is the prophet that was promised long ago, what's your exhortation, God? Listen to him. Pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty simple. Pretty simple. This is my son, my chosen one. Now listen to him. See, that's the hard part, isn't it? That's the hard part. Because, because spoiler alert, the apostles are still not going to get that Jesus had to die. They're still going to struggle. In fact, next week, we've got, this week, we've got the mountaintop experience. Next week, we've we got like the coming back from church camp kind of thing. You're like you're on the mountaintop here, but all of a sudden you come back from church camp and it's all like, what happened? We're getting there next week. Spoiler alert. But this is like the history of God's people. Moses comes down from the mountain with the, with the, uh, with the, with the law. All the people are on the ground and they see this great cloud, they see something happening, and you know what they're doing at the bottom? 
They're building a golden idol. And this is the continuous story after story of God's people. They disobey. God reveals his glory, but they continue to disobey. Continue to disobey. It's not because God has not revealed himself. It's because our hearts are stubborn. Because our hearts often love sin far more than they love God. But this moment was particularly powerful for Peter. But there's something more powerful. Today, we are still called to listen to God. But how do we do that? How do we listen to Jesus? 2 Peter 1, 16-21 says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic of glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter points back to this point. It was a moment of glory. It was an amazing moment. It was a powerful moment. It was one of those moments that impacted them for eternity. But 2 Peter 1.19 says this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You're like, man, maybe I'm sitting there If I was on that mountain, I would never disobey Jesus again. It would change my life. I would be so shaken up. I would never disobey again. I'd be sold out for Christ. I'd be radical. I'd have no problem taking up my cross and following Jesus. Peter says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from, one, from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's Peter saying? Peter's saying this. You want something more than the transfiguration? You want something more impactful than the transfiguration? Open your Bible. Open your Bible. Oh, we love the idea of something supernatural. Open your Bible. We love the idea of something authoritative. Open your Bible. We love the idea of something life-changing. Open your Bible. We love the idea of hearing from the Word of God. Open your Bible. Open your Bible, friends, as it reveals the will of God, as it reveals the person of God. This is God's plan for you, church. This is better. This is better. As we read the Holy Spirit, he he reveals Christ to us, and he changes our hearts, and he changes our lives, and he conforms us to the character of Jesus. This is far better. I know it doesn't seem like it at times. This seems so mundane at times. This is God's plan for your life. And it's a better plan than the transfiguration. Amen. So, what does it look like to listen to Jesus today? It means this. To the unregenerate. Perhaps you are not a Christian. You want nothing to do with Christ. You do not want to follow him. You don't know him. You love your sin far more than you love God. To obey Jesus today, the call to you is this. Look to Christ and trust him. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. He will save you from your sins. See in his word that he lived a perfect life that you could never, ever live. That on the cross, he bore your sin. 
He was crucified, paying the penalty for your sin, fully satisfying the wrath of God on your behalf. And for three days, he lay dead in that grave. And on the third day, friends, he rose again. Amen. Defeating death once and for all. And that when you trust in him, he promises, friends, to save you and to change you and to make you like Christ. If that is you, obey Christ. Trust in him. To the rest of us, to the Christian, we seek to listen and obey our Lord through his written word. That that should be what characterizes our life. What is God, God's not looking for you to speak. God's not looking for your opinion. God's not, God's not looking for your advice like Peter. He doesn't want it. He doesn't need it. And he's not honored by it. If you've got opinions or advice that doesn't line up with the word of God, please keep your mouth shut. It's not edifying to the body. What does this look like? It looks like this, reading your Bible. Read your Bible, but read with the intent to be transformed. Read with the intent to obey. Read it. Don't buy the, the argument that you don't have time. You have plenty of time. We all have plenty of time. We have plenty of time to read the Word of God. If we do not read the Word of God, it's because we don't care. We don't care. That We don't want to listen. Second, listening to sermons. I know this sounds self, self-serving. I don't mean it to be. But listening to sermons. Not to sit there and fall asleep. Not to sit there and, you know, sit low in your chair and not pay attention. But listen. This is God's will for your life, friends. Jesus says that the, pre- the preaching of God's word is for you. It is for your good. It is for your edification. So listen, don't sit out there as a critic. This isn't your job. I've been there. I know what it's, as someone who, it's easy as a, as a student of the word, as a preacher to, to sit there and act as a critic. It is not your job to be a critic. It is not your job to, to, to judge the success of my sermon or Matt's sermon or Tom's sermon or anybody else's. To look around and say, well, it's 12 o'clock. I'm just, No. It is your job to listen and watch as God changes your heart. Not to be a skeptic, not to be a critic. Yes, be a Berean, and yes, make sure that what we're saying is, matches up with God's word, and if it doesn't match up with God's word, come to us. If it doesn't match up with God's word, reject it. it doesn't, as James said a while ago, it doesn't matter personality, how loud, how soft, how long, how short, doesn't matter. Watch Christ work in this moment. Pray that God will work in this moment. Third, submitting to the elders. To obey Jesus means to submit to the elders, the God-given authority in your life. There's times I've been a part of enough conversations that I've led sinfully to understand that, like, we are not called to be rebellious towards the elders. Church, we are not called to be their critics. We're not called to come down on them on every decision they make or don't make. You know what we're called to do? To be a joy so that they can serve joyfully. And I bet that we could talk to enough elders in this room that it doesn't always feel like a joy to serve. And that's not their fault. It's mine and it's yours. And if we're going to listen to Jesus, then we're going to love them and encourage them in such a way that it's a joy for them to serve. And it starts with me and it starts with you. Listening to Jesus looks like loving your neighbor as yourself. To love them. To not belittle them. To have them over to your home for dinner. To serve them. To encourage them. To fight for them. To not give up on them easily. Because Jesus didn't. Didn't with us. Listening to Christ through his written word looks like this. Forgiving your neighbor when they've sinned against you. To forgive them and to forgive them and to forgive them and to forgive them. That's listening to Jesus. 
Be, listening to Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep going. I don't have much longer, but being a part of the life of the local church. Obeying Jesus and being a part of the life of the church. If you don't want to be a part of this church, we'll miss you. That's fine. But be a part of a local church. Submit to God-given authority. Serve your brothers and sisters in Christ in love. You want to listen to Jesus? Go and make disciples of all nations. Go. 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 May we leave here. May we go and make disciples. Not just, not just stay content with our little friendships here, but may we go. May we go on mission. I'm thankful for guys like Matt who keep talking about this. May we go. What does this not look like? Just quickly. Simply being a complaining critic. A joy-sucking leech out of the life of the body. Only obsessed with your own opinion, your own advice, for your own glory. No one's ever good enough. Nothing's ever good enough. That is not who Christ has called us to be. And if that is you, and it has been me in the past, and I pray that it's not me today. If that is you, friends, repent. Repent. Confess your sin. Confess your complaining attitude. Confess your critical spirit to the Lord and to those you've wronged. And bathe in the forgiveness of Christ that he offers. Friends, the prophet of old has come. The prophet promised has come. Jesus Christ has come. The prophet like Moses has come. The Son of God has come. The Messiah has come. And he has done what he said he would do for his glory and for our good. He has given us his word. He's given us everything for life and godliness right here in this book. May we listen to him, church.